Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 31B, an interview on Hoover, the first businessman president with David Hamilton. I'm excited to welcome David Hamilton to the show today. David is an associate professor of history at the University of Kentucky who studies 20th century U.S. political and policy history. He also wrote uh, an online biography of Herbert Hoover for the Miller Center, which has a nice database of biographies on every president. And today, I'm going to be talking to David about a curious fact of Herbert Hoover. He's kind of our first businessman president. And we'll explore how this background shaped Herbert Hoover's ability to lead and his philosophy as the nation's top executive. David, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thanks. So, Before Herbert Hoover, we'd had generals become presidents. We'd had lawyers, so many lawyers, become presidents. We'd even had a history professor and a newspaper publisher become president. But we had not yet really had someone who made their name and fortune in business become president. And I'm curious, why do you think we had not had a businessman president before Herbert Hoover? Uh, the nature of 19th and early 20th century American politics was such that it was extremely difficult to make it to the presidency unless you were an elected politician. Only a handful of presidents hadn't been elected to some sort of office. William Howard Taft, Ulysses S. Grant. Grant, of course, had the military experience. Uh, Taft had extensive experience as a judge and as a cabinet officer, uh, but they were sort of outliers. And uh, uh, Hoover breaks the mold in a sense. And his his success in so many different, um, different ways propels him to the presidency, but it doesn't really prepare him for the presidency. <laughs> yeah. And you, you made the point when I first reached out to you that Hoover, he wasn't just any normal businessman. He, he also worked in the field of engineering. How did this impact the way Hoover viewed himself and others viewed him? Well, so Hoover's career as a mining engineer is an interesting one. Uh, he is in the first class ever of Stanford University. He ends up majoring in geology. He goes from there to a career in in mining geology, starts out in the Sierra Nevadas, but uh, eventually, through his uh, intelligence, his hard work, he ends up with the British firm of of, of Bewick Mooring, and uh, he's sent off to Western Australia, uh, where they've got a bunch of gold mines. And um, he is very, very young. He's in his early 20s. And he realizes that these mines in Western Australia, and this is not unlike the experience of, say, California in the 1840s, 1850s, 1860s, or or Nevada and the silver mines, you know, in the 70s and 80s, that these mines aren't being well run, that they're they're poorly managed. uh, And What he does is he doesn't really so much discover new mines. He takes mines that are already in operation and he reorganizes them and he makes them far more profitable. He's kind of a a mining doctor of sorts. He takes sick mines and he reorganizes them. But what he develops as, as a 
a young guy in his 20s, he really, he's part mining engineer, but he's part financier, yeah. and part promoter. Yeah. These mines require tremendous capital investment. Mm. And you've got to then sell potential investors. Why should I mm. invest in a mine in Australia or later China? Uh, and so he's, he's, he's got a really unusual business career. He's remarkably global. Uh, he's in Australia and he's in China. Uh, and so and he, uh, he's, he's, He's a businessman, but a very unusual sort of businessman. And in many ways, he foreshadows what's going to be increasingly common throughout the 20th and now 21st century. Um, so he's, 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 a, he's a businessman, engineer, promoter, financier. And it's a sort of package of skills that allow him to become quite wealthy. He eventually leaves this uh, British-based firm and starts his own mining consulting company uh, that operates on a global basis. What he really is, in many ways, he's extremely modern. Uh, he's a college-educated professional who brings expertise to bear to the problems of, uh, of, of sick mines. Uh, but he's also very much a kind of a, 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 a global entrepreneur. Uh, and so this is... Um, He's got an unusual package of skills that he develops in the 20 or so years that uh, uh, he's um, uh, working with the in the mining business. Fascinating. I'm curious, what was he like uh, to work with as a businessman? Like, say you and I own a troubled mine, and we're trying to decide how to turn around, and, and we see Herbert Hoover's name cross our desk. Like, what are the, the pros and cons we're weighing of hiring this guy? What What's his superpower? What's his kryptonite? So he goes in, he sees what the problems are, and he's very capable, even in his early 20s, of making tough decisions. He knows some mines are never going to be profitable. He shuts them down. Hmm. He knows to make a mine profitable in Western Australia or Northern China that you've got to control your costs. And that means controlling your labor costs. So in Australia, uh, he starts bringing in workers from Italy. Uh, now, the whole Western Australian uh, mining situation, very much again like California, it's very global. You've got mm -hmm. workers from all over the world showing up. But uh, he wants a labor force that he can control, uh, and he wants to minimize labor costs. So he's pretty ruthless. He's very efficient, but uh, he's very driven. He wants to succeed. He's easy to get along with if you agree with him. <laughs> That's the trick, huh? <laughs> and, and he quickly develops uh, very, very testy relations with some of his superiors, it's one of the reasons why they uh, sent him off to China. They mm -hmm. realize that he's very talented, but he's not getting along with his immediate uh, um, uh, manager in Australia. And to avoid a kind of an ugly confrontation, uh, they put him in a new place. Um, and he, he wants to be in control. Uh, and and he, he likes to run the show. Uh, he has a real talent for identifying able, 
uh, young men uh, hmm. who are, again, college-educated, uh, who share uh, his commitment to work, uh, to employing uh, um, more scientific approaches. Um, he's not going to promote someone who's just come up through the ranks. He brings hmm. in new blood. Uh, and they reorganize these mines, uh, and they do it very well. And when he develops this, um, his own company, uh, consulting uh, my, uh, um, uh, on a global basis, uh, he hires uh, people very much like himself, and they're quite successful at it. But there's also this flair for promotion uh, and for um, uh, sort of wheeling and dealing on the financial side that... Uh, he, he d- kind of downplays later on in his career uh, because that sort of smacks of someone who's a gambler. And mm. uh, you, you had to gamble a bit in this business. I mean, it was yeah. a very yeah. risky business. Um, and so he, um, he eventually kind of cultivates the image of the selfless engineer, uh, the responsible uh, uh, uh you know, technically uh, uh, astute uh, a businessman, mining engineer, uh, and he downplays these these other attributes. But up until his presidency, he's very, very astute at cultivating the press, uh, at winning uh, uh, kind of a public following. Uh, he knows how to promote himself. Uh, and, 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 and I'm not saying that in a negative way. I mean, these are talents <laughs> that are important. And uh, uh, he's, he's, he's very good at this. And it all comes, unravels, of course, <laughs> with his presidency. Okay, can you elaborate on the self-promotion aspect? And like, what are some examples of this? What's it look like? What's he get from it? Because one thing that's kind of interesting about this is I feel like that's something a lot of people struggle with when you're trying to get your career established you need to toot your horn so people will hire you. But so often we like feel like that comes off as pompous. and We don't want to do that, you know? So so what's, what's his step into there? Does, is he just like no shame, shameless, and he just does it and it works for him? Uh, or or how does he go about this shaping his perception in the media? So that's an interesting question. I mean, he's, he's, he's very, he has an unusual personal makeup uh, as, we know he's orphaned at the age of yeah. 10. Mm-hmm. His father dies when he's six. His mother dies of typhoid fever when he's 10. He lives with an uncle for about a year and a half in eastern Iowa where he had grown up. He's uh, sent off to live with other relatives in Oregon and California. And he's never really comfortable with this new family. Mm-hmm. And he's he's kind of socially awkward. Um, <laughs> yeah shy he's introverted uh and um uh it's amazing he he has this public career he's not the sort of guy that you know he's not going to be life of the party he's not a gregarious um but boy he's forceful in person he's not a good public speaker right uh, He'll stand at the lectern and hold it, grip it till his his knuckles are white. He doesn't make eye contact, but Mm. he's got this circle of people around him who are just, they're they're just, they find him inspiring. He's the chief as he becomes known to all of his associates. Mm. Um, and, And they are just intensely loyal 
for years thereafter. If you've worked for Hoover, uh, you just consider yourself part of this inner circle, uh, and they deeply admired him. So he has to be able to sell the uh, these mining operations, uh, and he has to cultivate a kind of uh, uh, a rapport, if you will, with the uh, with newspapers yeah. and, uh, and, and and other avenues, and so it's not a, a shameless self promotion, but he's always he's always eager uh, to um, to look good, right. uh, and and he quickly cultivates the ability to send out information uh, and to put whatever he does in the best possible light, um, and so he he kind of controls that process up until. His presidency, as Secretary of Commerce, his it, before that his relief operations with Belgium, mm-hmm. yep. uh, with uh, uh, the American Relief Administration after World War One, he's always sort of selling what he's doing. It's 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 to some extent he's selling himself, but he's he's selling himself by selling what he's doing ah. and making it seem selfless, which it yeah. very often was, very often was, yeah. Um, and uh, and 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 portraying the uh, uh, his successes uh, in the most favorable way possible, uh, and and trying to minimize uh, the uh, the less pleasant uh, or less successful side of whatever ventures he takes up. Interesting. So it's it's like let's let's talk up you know these great causes I'm involved in, and then the glow of those causes will, will reflect back on me is kind of how he's developing his, his fame. Yes, absolutely. And and he knows how to, how to advertise himself in a sense with mm. press releases, uh, with speeches. <clears throat> he, he gets information uh, where, where it needs to go uh, for people to know what he's doing. Yeah. So, so all this succeeds in making him famous enough that he, he gets elected president. In 1928, I'm curious that, like, stepping back to that higher level, if he's our first businessman president, what regard did the American people have for businessmen during that era? You know, in the 1920s, or, were businessmen well respected? Were they distrusted? What What was the the feel for them? So that's an excellent question, and the answer is both. <laughs> uh, the the 20s. Yeah, the American economy is booming. We have this rather painful recession early in the 20s. But after about 1922, the economy takes off. We develop this mass production, mass consumption economy, these new businesses that are producing consumer durables, the automobile, the radio, electrical appliances, uh, generating uh, or developing electrical power systems. It just seems like we're in a new world. And the businessmen who are so much a part of this, they acquire a kind of aura uh, that makes them seem like a, a, a new type of business leader. And Hoover, Hoover is absolutely essential to creating that sense that the business executive of the 20s is a whole different breed of businessmen. These are executives. These are managers. They have a vision of social responsibility. They aren't part of a dog-eat-dog competitive world of the late 19th century. They respect their workers. They understand the need for balance in the American economy between workers 
and uh, and and business. Uh, there has to be a capacity for cooperation uh, that the men and they're overwhelmingly men who are running these companies, they aren't necessarily the owners anymore. Hmm. Uh, they're, they're university trained professionals and they have a larger sense of obligation of responsibility and Hoover has sees himself in this light. He has been this driven mining engineer, geologists, trying to get these sick mines to turn a profit, sometimes spectacular profits, uh, and to get people to invest in them. But then World War I comes along, and he shifts to these relief operations, getting stranded Americans from Europe back to the United States, organizing a multinational non-governmental relief operation for the nation of Belgium, negotiating with Germany and France and Britain to get food and medical supplies to these people. Uh, He sees himself, and this is part of Hoover's mystique. He's not just a businessman. He's a business, a successful businessman who has moved away from business, who has, Mm -hmm. who has, was developed this public life even before he goes into government service. Uh, there's a sense that he's he's willing to sacrifice. He's given up the pursuit of wealth, the pursuit of, uh, of, mm. of riches, uh, <laughs> to have this kind of larger um, um, public public role. Uh, that's again, it's, it's it's humanitarian. It's it's responsible. He's willing to sacrifice, and so. In the 1920s, or when he's running for the presidency, businessmen and and people who admire the business world, they respect his success as a a businessman, his business career. That gives him a certain cachet. But at the same time, people who are not entirely comfortable with the way that business has come to dominate, particularly large-scale business, dominate American culture, dominate the American economy, they see him, he's just not there to exploit workers or uh, to acquire great wealth. He has this larger public vision. And he's not just speaking it. He can really talk the talk. He's done this for years now. During the war, uh, as Secretary of Commerce, when he heads up this flood, Mississippi flood wave for 1927, um, He's there to deal with problems uh, beyond simply running a successful business. So when his campaign's running in 1928, how did the campaign balance this in their messaging? You know, like how much emphasis was there on businessmen? How much emphasis was there on humanitarian? You know, Uh, how important was it to him winning the office that he had had this business success? And that was part of his resume. Uh, What's what he does in a really interesting way is to package all of this. And, and mm-hmm. I say that again, I mean that not to diminish it, right. but he builds on all of it. He weaves a kind of storyline that, look, I'm, I'm not really a politician. He has never run for elective office mm-hmm. until 1928, but He's been a public figure for many years, so he's perceived as an important member of the Republican administrations of Harding and Coolidge, and yet he has this earlier life 
orphan to a world-famous mining engineer. It's a success story. And in the 1920s, success stories are important. They sell. And yet he's had success in not just business, but all these relief operations, these, these efforts at dealing with humanitarian crises, whether it's the victims of a flood or the victims of military aggression or the victims of famine after the war. So it's the ability to say, I am all of these things and, and I am, I'm different. Um, and, and so he, he brings a sense that, that he embodies a kind of a new politics, that there's something modern about him, his high, his, you know, his, his, his stiff high collars notwithstanding, that, um, that he's, a, he's a whole new breed of political leader who seems perfectly suited for the right. economic transformation, the economic evolution yeah. that the United States is experiencing in the 1920s. So he, he gets elected, and, and like you said, he's a new type of business, a new type of leader, and he has about eight months to to show it before the Great Depression hits. So I'm curious, in those eight months, are, are there any ways he differs in how he handles the presidency or approaches the presidency from those before him because of his business background? His first eight months are really interesting, and they're kind of obscured because of what happened. Right. But <laughs> He immediately launches a whole series of commissions and investigations and conferences. Coolidge, Calvin Coolidge, has in many ways rather astutely avoided really difficult political <laughs> situations, yeah. prohibition being one of them. Yeah. Uh, and Coolidge realizes that prohibition is a no-win political mess. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and Hoover appoints the so-called Wickersham Commission uh, on law enforcement, headed by George Wickersham, a former attorney general, to investigate the observance of, of law, but it's really aimed at what do we do about prohibition? Mm -hmm. uh, he tackles it head on. They eventually produce a report in 1931 that basically acknowledges this is a huge mess. <laughs> not quite sure what to do about it. Mm -hmm. uh, but Hoover uh, eventually launches a, a commission, a committee to study home ownership in American life, to study the uh, conditions of children uh, in, uh, uh, in American life. Uh, it's a whole series of initiatives, very little of it relying on legislation. He wants mm. to develop this kind of, uh, of, of political system where you're going to rely on non-political public figures, businessmen, but people in universities, professional associations. Uh, he's going to bring all of this kind of expertise and experience together to address problems. Hoover sees himself as a problem solver. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is reflected in his business career. You know, he sent there to Australia or to China to see how he can reorganize these mines. And each one, each different mine presents a kind of a, a problem and he has to figure out what to do about it. And he throws himself into it with his, his immense energy. Uh, and, and so he's determined to try to uh, get the uh, American government, the American public to address what he sees are necessary problems in American life. 
so it's a uh, it's uh, it's it's eight months of action. You know, he's the first president with a telephone on his desk. <laughs> and, nice, and he uses it a lot. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, he's he um, he's in contact with with businessmen, with bankers, with uh, uh, parts of the uh, federal government. Uh, uh, he's calling up uh, his cabinet officers and. Uh, uh, other officials in the government. He's always trying to get information. Uh, so he's he's this, this this hive of energy and drive uh, uh, that during these first months, and and then of course we have the stock market crash. So so it really sounds like uh, certainly a departure from Coolidge. Coolidge who <laughs> you know basically just chilled out the whole time. He's out there trying to find problems to solve, pro- trying to be like a proactive force for good. Is is that kind of an accurate description? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Yes. Now he's convinced that the American economy of the 1920s is the United States has entered what he calls and what was known at the time as a new era of American capitalism. This hmm. is not just an economic boom; it's the a transformation of an economic system that's going to create is it's a, it's an economy that is going to make possible a more progressive and small d democratic America that mm. is going to raise a standard of life for all of the American people. When he says in 1928 in the campaign, we are nearer the abolition of poverty than at any point in American life, at any point in history. He really meant it. Yeah. He really thinks that this is something that can happen, that this economy has the potential uh, to eliminate the kinds of conflicts and uh, uh, inequalities uh, and lack of opportunity uh, that have characterized much of American life. There's just such potential here. And he wants to try to harness this and galvanize it and, and build on what's been happening uh, to secure this. So so he sees his presidency as an extension of what he's been trying to do with the Commerce Department of reorganizing and transforming the American economy uh, to achieve a higher level of, uh, of consumption, of, uh, of standards of living for, for the whole of the country. So he comes in with this tremendous ambition, passion, but as we all know, eight months in, the Great Depression hits. And I'm curious, how did Hoover's business background shape his response to the Great Depression? So Hoover has been nervous about the stock market for years. As Secretary of Commerce, one of the first things he does as president is he writes about 40 or 50 bankers and businessmen and financial analysts and said, what do you think about the stock market? Is this <laughs> going to continue? And he, and he gets all these different responses. Of course, yeah. They, they aren't consistent, of course. Yeah. Uh, and, and there's not a lot he can do as long as, you know, the, the, the stock market is, uh, is, is this bull market is underway, but he's, he's nervous about it. So when the crash comes, he, in some sense, has been expecting something like this to happen for a while. And he does a couple of things. Well, first of all, he thinks what we need to do now is to contain this crisis, make sure that 
the collapse of stock values doesn't spill over to the rest of the economy. Uh, and he immediately begins organizing. He, he, he's, he's known as the master of emergencies, and in some ways, he's in his element when this happens. He organizes conference after conference. The, they're known as the survey conferences because they're supposedly going to survey the state of the American economy. He brings dozens of businessmen and heads of trade associations to Washington, D.C. They have a series of meetings, and he secures from these business leaders pledges. You're not going to cut wages. We're not going to mm. cut back on investment. We're not going to lower prices. And what he hopes is that this will stabilize the American economy, that with the the uh, the speculative bubble having burst, it's right. going to mean that credit will be more, credit won't be flowing into the stock market to buy stocks um, and hope that the value goes up. Credit's now going to move into more productive channels. Uh, and this is actually going to have a beneficial effect for farmers, for small businessmen, for corporations. Uh, the, the important thing is, again, to contain the crisis. Yeah. And, and he organizes the construction industry. They have conferences to do the same sort of thing. He brings labor leaders to the White House. Um, so he does, takes all of these actions, and for a while... It really works. Uh, the economy <laughs> yep. stabilizes. Yep. It looks like you know the the crisis is going to be contained. There are no there's no rash of bank failures following right. the stock market crisis. Crash, the stock, yeah. market, stock market crash, uh, and there's no sudden drop in in, in unemployment. Uh, and stock prices actually begin to tick up in February and March of 1930, but then it starts to go sour. After about six, seven, eight months, uh, businesses find that the market for their goods just isn't there. Mm. They begin to they begin to curtail wages, uh, cut mm. back on wages. They they stop hiring. They begin to lay off. And in October, November, December of 1930, about a year after the crash, we get a series of bank failures in the uh, the South and the Midwest. Uh, it's the first of the depression's banking panics. Mm. It's not a it's not a hugely serious one, but mm -hmm. it sends an ominous signal yeah. that what he'd been trying to do hadn't been working that well. He tries to organize relief operations to get state and local agencies and private charities to deal with the problem of unemployment, uh, to try to deal with joblessness. Uh, and it's 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 moderately successful, but it's overwhelmed. And mm. then what happens is in early 1931, uh, the economy again ticks up a bit. It looks like they, it, the the bottom's been hit, mm -hmm. and um, and then we get this crisis in Central Europe, in Austria, in Germany, the collapse of their banking system, yep. and it turns out that. <laughs> Thousands of, not thousands, but many American banks and investors have made short-term mm -hmm. loans to uh, German and Austrian or uh, European yeah. banks. Yeah, yeah. And, and when they these 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 banks cannot repay these loans, it puts a lot of American banks in a perilous state. Yep. This is when the Great 
this is when the depression becomes the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. Spring and summer of 1931. And Hoover is now convinced, first of all, okay, the American economy has been recovering. Uh, mm-hmm. we, were, we were moving out of the worst of this. All of a sudden, we're hit by what's happening in Europe. Yep. And we get this new uh, uh, set of financial crises. It rebound, uh, uh, Britain leaves the gold standard, which sends it another shockwave. And so, so now we have a far more serious banking crisis. Farm commodity prices plunge to their lowest point of the 20th century. Unemployment now jumps up dramatically. And Hoover realizes that uh, the situation is much worse. He takes a number of actions. He tries to organize a moratorium on the payment of German reparations and war debts uh, to try to stabilize the European situation. And he takes various, he institutes various measures to try to stabilize the banking system. At the same time, uh, what he does is he's convinced that all of these pan, what he considers to be panaceas that are being now um, uh, uh, advocated in Congress and elsewhere, these have got to be contained, supporting farm prices. Uh, he's created this federal farm board, uh, which is overwhelmed by the farm crisis, and, and this generates calls for more active government involvement. There are calls for massive federal relief operations to deal with unemployment, a whole host of these sorts of measures. Hoover digs in his heels. He says, no, uh, this is where the federal government should not go. The federal, no president to this time has ever responded to an economic crisis with as much energy uh, as Hoover did in late 29 and in 1930, and again in 31 with the moratorium, with trying to address the banking crisis. Uh, But he he draws, he insists that the private sector must cooperate on its own uh, to deal with many of the larger problems. And the federal government's responsibility is to ensure that that kind of cooperation happens. He builds on the model of that he's used so successfully in World War I and throughout mm-hmm. the 1920s of bringing private sector and non-governmental figures together to cooperate, to address problems. But now uh, it's overwhelmed and he can't accept the failure of what, uh, what he's um, embraced with such fervor for so many years. Uh, so this, 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 he's, he's constantly trying to address the crisis and yet prevent alternative answers to his, to, to, um, to the crisis. Now you go back to Australia, he doesn't deal well with, uh, uh, his critics, with, uh, right. uh people who, who don't take his point of view. Hoover is extremely thin-skinned. Hmm. Criticism just eats away at him. Uh, he never gets over it. I mean, he's still dealing with critics uh, of, of how he uh, handled the reorganization of mines in China. Uh, he can't let any of this go. Uh, one of uh, Winston Churchill's uh, recent biographers pointed out that Churchill developed 
the hide, the skin, thick skin right. of a rhinoceros. <laughs> yeah. He could take any type of criticism. And, you know, for someone who's run for office before, they know that criticism comes with the territory, with American yeah. politics. Oh, yeah. And, and Hoover can never accept this. When there's a critical news account or, or, or story in a magazine or a, a journal of, of, of opinion, um, it just it just festers with them. Uh, and, and he'll he'll sit down and he'll write a response, sometimes pages long. Oftentimes he won't send it, but but he has to get it out of his system. Yeah, never, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he never fully gets it out of his system. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so this this is one of his weaknesses. Mm. As a political leader, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, and he finds he has never gotten along with elected officials, particularly in Congress. Whether it was running mm. the Food Administration during World War One, or as Secretary of Commerce, there was a small group of members of the House and the Senate who admired him, who worked with him, but he tended to see most. Uh, these uh, most of these people is kind of parochial, uh, geared to the local, and all too often engaging in a kind of grubby politics of favoritism. Mm. He didn't trust them, and a lot of the elected members of the Senate and the House didn't trust him and didn't like him. So I uh, definitely see how, as you were saying earlier, there were many skills he just didn't develop. Because he had been a businessman. He, right. he developed a set of skills that were helpful in some areas, but there were many that are core to leading in a democracy where you got to work with Congress and public criticism that he just didn't have. That, 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 that's exactly right. And, and actually, the business experiences he had, you know, he's out there in Western Australia right. <laughs> running the show. Yeah. He has to work with a lot of people, but it's not like uh, the experiences of many businessmen uh, in the domestic U.S., uh, running a major corporation, uh, so it's it's a it's a, it was a different kind of world for him. So one other thing about Hoover is, is he, we talked about how he was an orphan. He was a child. He grew up. He, he's kind of a true rags to riches story. So he's not just a businessman. He's a businessman who came from nothing and found tremendous wealth. I'm curious how that impacted his view of uh, aid during the Great Depression, because one line he never wanted to cross is he didn't want to uh, do direct payments to Americans. You know, he, he didn't want to do like a social security or, or an unemployment insurance or anything like that. Is, is like this why it is, is, because on the other hand, you know, you might say that, well, if he came from such misfortune, you'd expect him to have a lot of sympathy for people who get unlucky and bad things happen to them. And you would expect him to really look out for those folks. So I'm curious, what do you think he took away from that experience and how did it shape how he responded to Americans in need? It's an interesting question because he's always deeply concerned about people who are in need, children mm. in particular, yeah. all of his life. He's just, he's always involved in some sort of effort to deal with the problems of children uh, who have suffered misfortune, uh, whether in, in the, the World War One. With the Belgian relief operation, he develops a separate relief operation specifically for children in Europe. Uh, and, and, and so this is something that he's always concerned, but he's convinced that it shouldn't be administered 
by a governmental agency that you want to create an agency such as he had created in World War I, these mm-hmm. relief operations, uh, so that the role of the federal government was to make sure that that kind of cooperative activity happened. Uh, and and he, he has this kind of disdain for the, um, again, the parochial nature of, of much of American politics. Yeah, yeah. Uh, his concern that if you create a public agency, it becomes self-serving, it becomes mm. limited, it becomes taken over by those who have a, a kind of a, a political agenda. Uh, and he, to some extent, romanticizes people like himself who he's convinced are always interested in the larger needs of the public, um, who have this obligation to be responsible, to be uh, selfless. uh, And and he can't accept, in fact, that the, uh, the American political system could create agencies and institutions and uh, uh, ways of addressing these problems that would embody many of his basic beliefs. So after Hoover, the next president whose claim to fame will be that he's a businessman will be Donald Trump. And I'm curious if we just look at these two businessmen, uh, Trump and Hoover, businessman who became president, what do we learn about how business does or does not prepare someone for the presidency? So it seems to me that in both cases, the fact that they've never really been in uh, elective politics right. uh, is a problem. It's an asset in some ways. Yeah. They look at how to address larger public issues in a different way. Yeah. They aren't confined by years of running for office, uh, but at the same time, they, um, they, they can't really, both men don't deal with criticism well at all. Yep. Both men feel that, hey, if I want something to happen, it should happen. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, that, um, and, 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 and neither can really deal with opposition. Uh, that you don't always get your way, that uh, uh, compromise is necessary. Uh, I mean, you know, there's the image of that Donald Trump develops of the deal maker. Right. But but he doesn't make many deals. And the right. kind of deals you make putting together uh, a development package, you know, for a, sure. a hotel or something, that's really a lot different than than cutting a deal to get legislation through Congress. Yeah. Um, but I think there's a couple of differences. Hoover is elected in 1928, eight years or, or really eight years of tremendous success for the American economy that rebounds to the credit of the Republican Party. So, and he's Secretary of Commerce. He's saying, look, this, this economy is to some extent my creation or what we mm. policies that we put in place have been critical to the success of this economy. He can't turn on this, this political system. He has to sort of add to it. He can't just say, no, he can't say it's rotten because right. he's part of this. Yeah. Yeah. Donald Trump is quite willing to attack what's in place. 
you know, he's he's critical of Republicans. He's critical of Democrats. He said, look, the system is rotten. Uh, he, he's, he's something of a bomb thrower, if you will, in terms of, of undercutting or challenging what he sees as mainstream politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he presents himself as someone who's entirely outside yeah. of the whole uh, political system. Hoover was sort of trying to straddle this. I'm ah. part of the best of what's happened in the 20s, but yeah. I'm also new. I'm different. Yeah. Uh, and so, and, and and that serves him well in 28. It doesn't serve him so well after the depression hits because he can't really go to a lot of Republicans in Congress uh, because a lot of them don't like him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and um, they're just very different people. Uh, changing tack for, for as we near the end of the interview, uh, you mentioned farmers a couple of times and you, you've written a book about Hoover's farm policies. And while I haven't really gotten into this in my podcast, the 1920s, if I remember right, that's a pretty rough time for farmers. Would you mind telling me a bit about what is going on for American farmers during these years? What was Hoover trying to do to help them? Did it work? Did it not work? Because this is a like, big part of the economy still, right? It's, it's absolutely a big part of the economy and the so-called farm problem or farm relief problem, as it was known in the 20s, is the most serious pol- uh, economic policy issue of the decade. Hmm. Uh, and it's uh, the, uh, in the early 20s with the recession, American agriculture is clobbered with a, a serious farm crisis, farm prices plunge. What's happened during World War One? is that farm prices had skyrocketed because of the unusual demand. Land prices had skyrocketed. Many Mm -hmm. farmers borrow heavily to buy more land, to buy the early power equipment, the early tractors. Yeah. Uh, Only about one... One in six farmers uh, had 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 a had a tractor in the 1920s, but that's still a significant increase over the pre- or before the 1920s. Yeah, they're they're, they're borrowing heavily to uh, improve uh, to buy new, more livestock, uh, uh, to buy a, a better quality of livestock. Then we get this crisis of the early 20s. The bottom falls out of the commodity markets. A lot of these farmers are stuck with these very heavy debts. They can't pay them off. Many go out of business, but many just, they survive the crisis. And after 1923, the farm economy begins to slowly improve, but they're carrying these debts, particularly in the Middle West, uh, in Iowa and Illinois. And uh, it's just, it's extremely difficult to get out from underneath this the farm economy is slowly beginning to get better, but it's hit with the Great Depression. Now, now there's there's a number of problems here. Uh, there are about 6 million farmers in the 1920s, 1930, mm-hmm. and that's frankly far too many. Uh, mm-hmm. That the nation had basically was in the midst of what you might call an agricultural transformation that as the farm economy was slowly, steadily becoming more productive per acre of land, per worker in agriculture, we didn't need 6 million farmers, 6 million 
families, about 30 million people working in agriculture. Um, and uh, it's basically, in a, uh, you've got large parts of the farm sector that aren't very productive. You've got a huge amount of trapped resources of, of, of workers who are trapped in a low wage lines of activity, low productivity. We're beginning in the 1920s to see more and more people leaving the farm for non-farm employment. And then with the Depression, that comes to a halt. So throughout the 20s, there's this political battle to somehow support farm prices. Coolidge, Hoover, they oppose this. Hoover's alternative is that we need a federal agency to support large-scale cooperative marketing associations to organize wheat and grain growers, cotton growers, livestock producers into large-scale cooperatives that farmers own themselves that are going to market goods to, um, uh, with the interests of the farmer in mind to create in some ways a new farm marketing system that he hopes will be more efficient, less wasteful, but that will also provide farmers with some control over their prices. When, when you say large scale, do you mean like he's almost like monopolize a co-op like that big, like all the farmers of cotton in the country should be in one co-op or is it like regional? How big is large scale here? So there's a movement in the early 1920s headed by a, a, a California businessman lawyer, Aaron Sapiro, and he tries to get all these small grain elevators uh, mm-hmm. Uh, and livestock shipping associations to uh, form massive cooperatives that have a kind of, if not monopoly, kind of an oligopolistic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that farmers need to be price setters rather than price takers. And you've uh, got yeah. to turn over what you, well, these things don't do well. Uh, <laughs> okay. They, 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 they can't obtain the, the credit they need. And it, it's a, it's um, kind of a fantasy that a cooperative marketing association could exercise that kind of control. So Hoover, Hoover steps away from that kind of vision, but he's still convinced that if you get the cooperatives to, co- to, um, to form larger associations on a regional and even a national basis, and if you get more farmers to participate in this system, that it would help the basic problem as he sees it is the farm economy is atomized. It's disorganized. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of, you know, this is, this is Hoover, the organizer at work. The problem here is a lack of organization. We need a better organized business system. Well, we need a much better organized farm economy and farmers need their own vehicle, their own institutional vehicle, if they're going to address their larger economic problems. The answer isn't the Department of Agriculture to support farm prices. The answer is to create large-scale institutions that function in the interest of farmers. Um, so it's, it's uh, again, it's this kind of Hoover's business, his engineering background, his his career as a, a public official, where he's always trying to organize, organize, right. organize, right. organize. Yes. And it has a kind of an appeal to it, but he vastly overstates the ability of the mm-hmm. cooperatives to organize, to come together, mm-hmm. to deal mm-hmm. with these problems. Um, and so he, uh, he, 
he he keeps emphasizing this, and then with when the depression hits, when farm prices plunge, he's created this. The first thing he does, um, and this is part of the, that first eight months, he calls Congress into a special session to deal with farm legislation. And the special session passes the first major farm bill in American history, the Agricultural Marketing Act, which creates the Federal Farm Board. And the role of the Federal Farm Board is to provide low interest credit to cooperative marketing associations to get them to merge into larger units. As the Farm Board starts making these loans in 1929 before the stock market. Oh, no. And then... You know, these these smaller cooperatives cannot repay these loans. Yeah, uh, and there's also the board decides that it has to step into the commodity markets. They buy wheat, it buys wheat, it buys cotton to try to stabilize prices in order mm-hmm. to help these uh, struggling cooperatives. And then the board is stuck with these ever growing supplies of cotton and wheat, some other commodities as well that they can only sell at a loss. Uh, And so uh, they dig themselves into a very deep hole. They've got these unsold stocks. If they try to sell them, it will only depress prices. But if they don't buy more, then prices keep going down. Uh, And by by 1932, it's in a hopeless situation. Uh, And it's obvious that the, uh, the cooperative marketing system cannot possibly address the depression crisis uh, in American agriculture, which is very much a global and worldwide crisis. Yeah, yeah, that's all fascinating. The last question I always like to ask everybody is what lesson in leadership do you think we can learn from Hoover? So Hoover was an immensely talented man, in many ways brilliant, but his, his, his skills just don't, lend themselves, did not lend themselves mm-hmm. uh, to the presidency, even without the depression crisis. It's hard to say that his, one wonders if his presidency would have been all that successful. He couldn't deal with it, intensely emotional issues like prohibition very well at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, he doesn't deal well with Congress, as I suggest, suggested. And so he, he, um, uh, you know, another type of business leader perhaps would have had more success, but uh, mm-hmm. but 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 he's his 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 um, his lack of any kind of political experience of of you know having run for even dog catcher at some point <laughs> uh, right. uh, that that really leaves him unprepared for the uh, the political demands of the presidency, and you know we can. Sit back and say, "Oh, you know the uh, uh, this is all politics. So we need to move away from it." Well, the reality is that it is a political position. There's a political dimension to being a successful president, and if you don't have these political skills, you're not going to succeed. If you enjoyed this interview with David and want to hear more, you can check out his book. From New Day to New Deal, American Farm Policy from Hoover to Roosevelt, 1928 to 1933. Or you can go enroll in one of his classes at the University of Kentucky. Uh, Thank you for your time, David. Kenny, great. Enjoyed it. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends and family about the show, bug them to listen until they're ready to spend an evening discussing the 19th century history of presidential involvement in labor disputes, and then write a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow the show on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash abridged presidential histories. This helps me buy books and pay to host the show, and thank you so much to everyone who's contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode, I'll talk to historian Robert McElvain about the origins of the Great Depression and why Hoover's attempts to remedy it failed. That's coming up next time on Abridged Presidential Histories.